in a couple of years you'll be grown up. You'll be out there in the world. The thing you don't understand is, you know, there's bad people out there, you know? What do you mean? To dream the impossible dream. Bad people doing bad stuff. To fight the unbeatable foe. If you get in a bad situation, I want you to feel like you can talk to me. Oh, thanks, Pad. <laughs> How you feel? Not great. Okay! This okay, is okay. my quest to follow that star. No matter how hopeless. No matter how far. She's got a boyfriend. I'm Adrian. So, what do you do? Bit of this, bit of that. Bit of this, bit of that. That's what you do. You're a criminal. <laughs> what? You don't like the surprises, do you, Ray? I'm gonna go down there and rip his tiny dick off. <laughs> what, do you kill people or something? I'll have to ask me too many questions. To reach the unreachable. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to Killer Casting. I'm Lisa Zambetti, casting director in Los Angeles, California. And here we are, back where we began. We I kicked off this podcast almost for the sole reason of covering this show that my dear sexy beast suggested to me. And we have been waiting. Bri Bri and Dean Dean and I have been waiting for season three to drop. And lo and behold, Mr. In Between season three has dropped. And so that's what me and the sexy beasts are going to be covering today. The first episode. I'm sure that they have a lot to say. Say hi, Bri Bri. What up? Hello. And Dee Dee, say hi. Oh, another nickname. Yes. Okay. DD, I'll have to talk about this off air. But yes, hello, everybody. Welcome to Melbourne, where, by the way, apparently I heard a radio interview with uh, Scott yesterday mm-hmm. and he was bemoaning the fact that he was locked down in Melbourne. So my heart gave a little flutter because that means that Ray and I are in the same city, Ooh, at least temporarily. Nice. Well, Scott and I, but uh, I think I'm guessing he was in Sydney by the staging of the show, but there you go. So I want to check in with you for a second. So as this season, before the season dropped, this idiopathic, epigrammatic show that we all admired so much, I was a little nervous for season three, I have to admit, because you never know what's going to happen in the interim, especially when a show starts to really get rolling, starts to get a following. And then some of the things that made it so great can kind of get a little manipulated so to speak especially if the studio starts to feel like oh wow this is going to be a runaway hit and they give it maybe a little more hand-holding than perhaps it had before and you know is it still going to have that great scotch tape together quality i don't know (laughs) did you guys feel the same way 
I really wasn't nervous about mm -hmm. it only because Scott and Nash have such a remarkable palette that they draw from. I would love to get Scott Ryan on the phone and ask him about the shorthand that those two have together as writer and director. And so I trust those two mm, very yeah. much. Yeah, same. I figured that if they were willing to wait, what, 13, 14 years of pitching this thing and that the deal breaker was Scott starring in the film and they held out and held out and held out until FX said, okay, that then there's no way that they're going to allow any studio to roll over them and have some bullshit. Surely got pretty full creative control. I think the only thing that I was nervous about was not the show mechanics themselves. What I was nervous about, because I told you guys that I finished up the end of season two after we had discussed the first few podcasts or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the thing I was nervous about was the realization of how much Ray lost mm -hmm. in mm. all of season two and what then is he going to lose in season three? That's what mm. I have been nervous about because that seems the trajectory that he's yep. on. Yep. Yeah, definitely. As we jump into episode one, it's definitely been a turning point. End of season two, losing his brother and losing Allie. And now even in the very first episode of season three, the life after is a very different kind of life. It's a very different tone. But are you ready to go into the, the first ep? Yeah. Absolutely. All right, here we go. So the first scene, we're not with our dynamic duo of Gaz and Ray. We are with who? Who do we have well, here? It's people that we've never seen before, mm. right? Other criminals, right? right. Plotting a... Yeah. And this is something that... This is the first time we have started a show that's not Ray-centric, mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting mm. that they would yeah, focus on... Outside forces planning a heist, planning a criminal act. Mm. By the way, outside forces, Brian, is a, a very generous term to what we have. Now, for Aussies who, that opening scene, that is just every next door neighbor's classic backyard. You've got the garage that opens up at the back onto the grass. They've got a pool, but it's got one of those old-style 1980s child-proof fences. They're drinking very basic cans of beer. They are what we call bogans in Melbourne, which is similar. It's like the city version of a redneck. I don't know mm. whatever that is, right? So these guys are very – this is a, a small family business of crooks. Right? This is a little – Neighborhood mate. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. The lead guy is what we would call in my family a mook or yeah. a jabroni. He's just, again, a wonderful face. And I want to ask Scott Ryan this because we may be having him come on the pod about the casting of this sort of alternative small time mob guy. He looks, you know, he's bald just like Scott. There's something about them that sort of connects in a weird way, just visually, but he's definitely a big, I don't know, is it called rugby in Australia? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. He's, like a, a, he's a big solid unit. Yes, he does he, look like a rugby player, not an AFL player. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like his skull and his shoulders kind of are all molded together well it's funny the sense that i got of those guys and it, it was reinforced as the episode goes on we can talk about that he looks like sergeant rock he looks <laughs> yeah. like a military guy <laughs> mm. which mirrors gaz and yeah and Ray's yeah. experience 
And his name is Graham. We find that out later. Mm. There is something very sweet, though, about his face. There is something, you know, and he's there putting his little girl's little swimmy thing on her arm. And I love that juxtaposition of this big hulking guy. But there's kind of a goofiness or a softness to his face that I would love to have a pint with this guy. Kind of a vibe to him. He's He doesn't have some of the sterner or colder some of these other killers that we've come across. But anyway, so they're planning to do some kind of double cross and we can only assume that it's that Ray has something to do with it. And all of his mates are like, I'm not sure I want to do this, right? His right-hand man is like, what? You want me to do what? The whole plan of it just, he's got to coax them all into doing it. Mm. I'm actually conflicted when he, uh, due to the little chat that he and Ray have at the end of this episode, and he says, I got my boys killed. And the fact that it opens in the backyard of the house, I'm not quite sure whether they're his sons or whether he just means his boys, as in the colloquialism. Because when they get to the exchange and he hands over the guns and Ray says, now the 30K, and he says, give me the lad first. And so it's all quite familial language, but it's not clear whether they're actual blood or not. See, and that's why I kind of interpreted them having a military background. Mm. They've shared the experience of war. And so they've come back from war. And it, it goes back to season two, where he's talking to the reporter saying, oh, it was fine to kill people when I was in the military, when I was in the army. But now that I'm not, mm-hmm. now it's not okay for me to kill. It's really interesting how Scott has put into the storyline, the veteran left astray. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, untethered cut you know, loose we, we, yeah we've cut yeah. loose hey yeah. thank you for your service here's a pint and uh, now go fuck off so these guys they went to war together and so it makes perfect sense that they would then come back to in this case australia and go to war together just in a different way mm. yeah there might be that military connection they definitely mr chain the guy who almost gets chainsawed he says i've known these guys since i was six years old that doesn't mean they couldn't have all been in the military together but it felt mm. more like childhood chums and and yeah. that kind of thing yeah. by the way the title of the very next episode is called before i went to war so yeah. there you go it is mm-hmm. yeah, it's called champs yeah, oh, is- oh, I beg your pardon. Sorry, in, we're recording this slightly behind time. I'm talking about the real oh, okay. in, as of today. Okay, <clears throat> so the con tries to go down. They try to do this gun exchange, this classic. The guy is in on it who's supposedly paying for the guns. And there's a double cross that goes on. And Ray and Gaz get their asses kicked. And I 100% thought that Gaz had been killed. The beating that he took and the way he did not recover from it, I thought, oh my gosh, we're starting the season with him dying. And I feel like you had to feel that kind of fear because that's what provokes Ray to be unleashed and and run over the kid who's double-crossed them. What did you guys think of that scene? Mm, What was interesting was that Ray clocked very quickly what was going on. Gaz was pretty much unconscious, but the young kid who was in on it is dragging them and helping into the helping him into the car mm-hmm. and calling him mate right and a real crook would have just booked right he wouldn't give a shit about ray and gaz he would have just gone so here's this guy dragging them into the car and he gets ray in and you can see that ray is still in pain and he's still trying to process things and then there's a shot from behind the kid who's looking through the passenger window at ray and he says are you okay 
And Ray just looks at the guy and smiles. And right then, Ray suspected before, but when he smiled at the kid, it's like, oh, now he knows. So as soon as that kid got in front of the car, I went, I know what's coming. It just reminded me, though, guys, I just thought of this. Isn't this the same double cross that happened to Gaz in season one where he and his brother-in-law, his brother-in-law pretended he had nothing to do with this being ripped off? Yeah, I I totally had forgotten that it was a callback. There are some real echoes of scenes being mirror imaged. And there's another one in season two that is a mirror image of a scene from, actually it was the opening episode of series two. But yeah, they didn't fool Ray at all and it was never going to end well for them. Yeah. The next scene is the kid who Ray has run over wakes up and he's tied to a chain link fence. And the look on Scott Ryan's face, his eyes are just dead. Mm. Like a shark. His eyes are just looking at him. It's just a wonderful, wonderful moment. And he's just brooking no bullshit. He's just like, who did it? Tell me. And this is the thing. And I want to be very careful because I'm sure I've looked at Scott's Instagram and he's a very nice man or whatever. But when he gets that look and there's a there's always the preview on Hulu where it announces the day and time of Mr. Inbetween. It shows a scene from one of the episodes and it's him counting a brick of cash and smiling. And he looks like Anton LaVey, who was the former head of the satanic church back in the oh, yes, late yes, 60s yes. and 70s. Where <laughs> yes. He looks like evil incarnate. When he gets a certain smile, mm-hmm. I mean, it's fucking absolutely chilling how he smiles. And mm-hmm. he's, the teeth, the size of the teeth. And like I said, I hope when he hears this, I'm sure he's perfectly nice, but it suits the character so well. And it is, it's not something that is easy to manufacture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really I mean, isn't. Yeah. And it's often that Ray look is often shot with the camera slightly above him. So his eyes are looking up as well as that classic whenever they do that smile, it's very often from that with the camera slightly above him as well. There's a lot of interesting things about this scene with the poor guy chained to the chain link fence and the, what's not a buzz saw. Yeah, chainsaw. Ray is threatening him with the chainsaw. There's a lot of humor in that scene. There's Mm. a lot of sort of, not comedy of errors, but there's, there's something funny about it, even though it's such a dangerous scene. And the guy gets on his phone and is trying to tell his mates, yes, he figured it out. You're going to have to come and get me. Bring the money. There's something kind of I mean, but in that, I think you're right to say comedy of errors Mm. on the side of the team. They underestimated who they were dealing with. And so, yeah, then it becomes this Mm. kind of not noises off level farce, (laughs) but it does. The scene still rings true, even though it has that kind of dark comedy undertone. Yeah, Mm. yeah. In a way that Mare, when they tried to interject- Ding, ding, yep. Comedy Mm. did not work. Yep, I'm so glad that you said that. And then there's that moment, and we see this moment, it's going to happen again and again through the season, where the kid is like, look, I can't give up their names. I've known these guys my whole life. I can't do it. And there's something that really strikes true with Ray. Like, he Mm. gets it. And I'm sure he could have gotten those names out of him, chopped off one foot at a time. But he just kind of lets it go. And it's like, okay, come get your boy. But I think it also doesn't matter to Ray because he knows what he's, he already has worked out what he's going to do with the exchange. He's already expecting some kind of double cross, which is why Gaz and Dave are in position. And so the fact that he doesn't give him the names, it's like, well, it would have been nice to have, would have been nice to know, but it doesn't matter because I'm going to know their names soon enough anyway. He doesn't care. Which is, which is why I feel like Gaz is the, Gaz was the one who set up the gun buy. Mm-hmm. Seems like it, yeah. 
Yeah, he hasn't do, had much he, luck. He doesn't do his due diligence at all. Whereas <laughs> now that Ray has taken control of the situation, mm-hmm. what do we, there's preparation. Yeah, and actually, just as you tell me that, it strikes me that once again, and I said this in the very first couple of eps that we did on the first series, that once again, Ray is left to clean up Gaz's mess. And also that Gaz is the only person in Ray's orbit that gets a free pass on any level of clusterfuckery. He's just got infinite patience for him, even though he's a pain in the ass at times, but that military bond and the brotherhood just goes back so far. It's like, there's no way that Ray would ever, ever, ever double cross Gaz. No way. And I do. I would like to ask Scott if he does come on the show, just as a thought exercise. So what would have happened if the Goombats had brought the money back with the guns? They, they did. He did. No, I mean, to, and gave it over. And gave it to him. The now way that's that Ray a, had asked. Yeah. Well, would they have let them leave without that's, the shootout? Yeah, you know? that's, that's what I, I've got a note that says the way that Gaz and Dave were positioned was he even going to let them get away for what they did? And that's why I thought it, he didn't give a shit about the names mm-hmm. because he knew that they were going to be there. And he's like, well, you're all going anyway, right? Because I can't, if you've got the balls to do this to me, I can't have that just out there floating around waiting for the next time you want to do this. So sorry, you're all going. That may well have been the case regardless. So talk about the shootout, guys. I don't know much about these sort of scenes, but what struck you about the shootout? Okay, so for me... You know, the classic thing where, what was the movie about Wyatt Earp, but not called Wyatt Earp? Tombstone. Tombstone. So Tombstone, in the scene where there's Tombstone and they're, they're in the OK Corral and they're all facing off against each other and Val Kilmer winks at one of the gunmen and that's it. It just sets off the whole scene. Mm-hmm. And so there we go. There's uh, Dad. He's handed over uh, Graham. Graham's handed over the guns, but he's still smirking. He's smirking at Ray and I'm going, oh no, he still doesn't get it. And so as uh, they're walking away, the guy smirks at Ray and you know that Ray's not going to put up with that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it, that he's walking away without the money. And then as the four-wheel drive starts to back out, the driver flips Ray the bird and the car's backing up slowly and Ray just smiles and he gives him the old-fashioned 60s peace sign and a, and a big smile. And I'm like, oh, this is not good. And then, of course, he reaches down and pulls out the, the pump-action shoddy and, and away we go. And at this point, I just want to give a shout-out to Nash and to the armourer on the uh, series and the cinematographer because this thing is shot so tight and taut, the scene is just fantastic. It doesn't last very long, but there's not a wasted frame in it. And just the way that that whole thing goes down is great. You've got little cutaways to Gaz on the sniper rifle. You've got Dave there hidden in the bushes. And for Graham to turn up and just think that Ray's going to be there, ready to just, okay, just do it by himself. Well, it seems like he's underestimated Ray because of Gaz. If Gaz was the front of this organization, he probably thought that, well, these knuckleheads are going to be pushovers. But Brian, have you ever seen somebody shoot an automatic weapon the way that Scott Ryan was holding that machine gun or whatever it was? I was just going to say, it's a pump-action shotgun, and I thought the same thing, that it was a little bit John Woo, but it turns out that if you look, because I I rewatched it yesterday, so a pump-action shotgun, Lisa's got maybe five or six, it's got room for five or six shotgun cartridges, Mm -hmm. and then 
you can load a bunch more in, but he didn't have time. And as it turned out, the right-hand side of the gun was where when you pull the slider back, that's where you drop the shell in. So he had it sideways so he could just drop shells in, okay. close it and fire as quickly as possible. That was my view. But yeah, I mean, I'm watching it right now. I'm just clicking through it. I'd love to know. I've never, ever seen anybody hold nah. a gun I, like and that. I, and I never have either. And, and this is the mm. thing that I also appreciated about the scene too. And again, it's the thing that I appreciate about this show just in general, the messiness of it. Gas mm. is a great shot, but I mean, if people are moving, mm. you have to deal with the glass of the vehicle. So people are getting shot, but it's not happening like once. And there's a great distance too. Mm. So there's a reality that they are mining, I think. People are being shot and being killed, but it's happening in a way that I think embraces the reality of the show. There's no glamour to it. It's not right. a glamorous thing that's happening yes. here. Oh, no. No, it's down yeah. and dirty. It's happening yeah. in a scrubby little, dirty little country farm that's run down. And it's not, no, there's nothing. And I noticed, too, I noticed too, because I went back and watched the first episode today as well. Graham is wearing a, a Kevlar vest. Yep. Yep. Yes, yes. But Ray, because of the shotgun, he's hitting him in spots where he's vulnerable. The last, not the kill yeah. necessarily, but he gets hit in the shoulder because you could see the juice. Right, right. Yeah. Well, that, that's yeah, yeah. why it makes sense that it takes quite a lot to bring him down, to bring finally mm. bring Graham down. He's got to keep pumping him until he finally crawls up and they have that great little exchange. So what did you think about this little exchange between the two of them? What does it mean? Well, How did you feel about it? Just before we get to that, I want to say, Brian, you're doing a good job of stealing all my lines today. <laughs> yes, Wait, Brian. Uh, yeah, no, the, no, with the Kevlar, right? Because I noticed he got a chest shot in the Kevlar with the shotty, but he also got a shot in the back and he got up and then there's a long shot where the camera's behind Ray and Graham's just trying to stumble into that barn and there's a, a mesh fence, like a wire door. Mm-hmm. And the kill shot is actually side on. So that shotgun blast hits him on his right-hand side up of his rib cage, And so it's between the front plate and the back plate of the Kevlar. And that's the one that really messes him up. And so now, yeah, now we're into the barn scene. So what did you think about that, Brian? I got to tell you, the economy of language, it's just devastating. If you took these two guys and put them at a cafe table with that same conversation, it would Mm. just have this kind of mundane quality to it. And the fact that he's sharing this moment with him, Mm. right? that they share each other's names. Ray isn't afraid of anything coming back. He knows he's going to die. And that line, coulda, shoulda. It's just absolutely devastating. And again, hearkening back to when he talks to the reporter when they're having the interview, she's like, do you feel guilty? It's like, why should I feel guilty? I don't Mm. feel guilty, blah, 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 blah. We have seen moments where when he killed the wrong guy and he gave the woman the cash, that's different because he killed the wrong guy. And we know he has that sense of code. This is different. This is a different kind of regret that we have, I don't think, seen from Ray where the job yeah this is Mm. i'm sick of this shit yeah yeah Yeah. something was taken from him Mm. not maybe that's not the right phrase i I think it's just this sort of regret like you dumbass why did you make me kill you that's right (laughs) yeah there's a great yeah wrong with you this didn't have to go down like this none of this had to happen and graham kind of knows that this is a scene that really shouldn't work in mm. clumsier hands it would be like come on let's not have this little conversation between these two but, but again, it works 
And again, because they're not using soundtrack underneath it. Mm-hmm. They're not telling the audience how to feel mm-hmm. with music underneath. It's just a human moment between two men. And yeah. to me, that's where the power is. Yeah. And I love that Ray walks up to Graham and he burbles out through the blood with a bit of a wry smile. He says, uh, bit off more than I can chew, eh? And Ray looks at him and says, no matter now, mate. Just we both know how this is going in the next sort of 60 seconds. So just chill. And that's when. But he, but he also gives him the little bit. Yeah, yeah, you love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he says, uh, I should have just handed over the cash. And that's when Ray gives the title. Yeah, yeah and then he, then he admits his regret. Of, I got all my boys killed. Yeah. Mm. Now, just a couple of things here. Lisa, a question for you. We have Graham with an eyes open death scene. How did you rate? How did you rate his eye open death scene? <laughs> I thought it was pretty damn stellar. Yeah, I actually thought that it was going to be a jump scare. I mm. thought, oh, maybe he's not quite dead because Ray leaves his gun kind of close to his body, and when he walks away with the fanny pack full of cash, so I didn't quite believe that he was dead. But anyway, I thought it was yeah. good. And look further to Brian's comments about you were trying to land on exactly the right word there before, Brian, about Ray being maybe starting to get a bit tired of the business. If you go back and look at the scene, it's the cut directly after when Graham dies and you see Ray just sort of half turn away and he's got a sour taste on his face. Yeah, It's partly regret. It's partly not disgust, but now I'm struggling to get the right words. But when you look at it, you know, and as you said, Lisa, it's almost exasperation. Like, ah, oh, for fuck's sake. A weariness. What, what? Didn't, it, yeah, it yeah. didn't have to go down like this. And then, of course, I was shocked when he leaned down and he cuts Graham's money belt off. And I, I held my hand. I went, he had the 30 grand. Like, it wasn't obvious when he said, I should have just paid you. I thought he didn't bring it. He had the money. Oh, my God. I, I was wondering, though, Dean, if this was sort of a cultural thing that maybe I was missing. There's something about men. You got to get that last one up on the other. He could have given him the money, but no, I just got to. I don't know if that's an Australian yeah. thing or. A- no, no, I think that if Graham had given him the guns and the gunny, <laughs> let me just rephrase that. If he had have given him the guns and the money, it would have been a complete capitulation in front of all of his boys yeah. to Ray. Yeah. And so, like I said earlier, he had this sort of smirk on his face. And the note that I made was, he's not recognizing the danger he's in. Mm -hmm. He's like those guys that underestimated Walter White once he turned into Heisenberg. Mm -hmm. You don't realize the danger you're in, and Graham didn't. And it was only afterwards that he got it, but by then it was too late. And this is, again, this is just an opinion. I honestly don't think that if Graham had given the money and the guns, I don't think that he would have had those guys killed. Because if we think about when he was supposed to kill the president of the motorcycle club he had every opportunity to kill him when he was in camouflage but his family was there and Mm. he Ah. hesitated constantly Mm. again it's that code yeah so again that's just an opinion i think i don't know yeah okay there is uh, one australianism lisa you're talking about if it's a local thing so when ray says i think it's gaz says what's that and he throws him the, the money bag the fanny pack as you call them and it's 30 grand and gaz says beauty 10 grand each 
And Ray says, I don't want any of it. And that relates back to the look of disgust on his face or whatever it was. He just doesn't want any part of it. And really that scene is the start of, because we've all seen, and listeners by this stage will have seen up to episode four, we can see that things are changing for Ray. We're not going to get ahead of ourselves. But the (laughs) the way that... Dave grabs the money bag off Gaza and sort of starts to walk off with it. And Gaza just very laconically, and this is a classic Gossie phrase, he just says, easy, Tiger. I don't know if you have that over there, but that just means Tiger is like a nickname for somebody. It doesn't mean anything, but you're just like, oh, g'day, Tiger, how you going? Just like champ. Uh, yeah, which, we'll find out how that. We'll find out about that, yeah. But just the way that Gazza just goes, easy, Tiger. As if, I, it's not going anywhere. I love the fact that Dave is a more integral part of the crew i've mm. loved him since yeah yeah two episode arc in season one he's great yeah, yeah he's a great addition to the gang that introduction scene of dave when he kidnaps ray back i think what it was the end of it was the last episode of series one wasn't it where it all davros the explosion and all that sort of stuff but the conversation that they have in the car between him and ray about how dave's having a baby and he's going to call him quentin and ray's like oh that's a shit name and just that whole rambling discussion about quentin it was so tarantino-esque it was just this little sidebar of comedy as dave is basically driving ray to his death which he knows yeah. yeah, fantastic. Okay, let's, let's blitz ahead because we have so much more to cover. So we go to Ray's house. Now, is this a new house? This looks like a totally different apartment than he had before. I don't know, but what did strike me was that that was a jump cut straight from the Easy Tiger scene and the end of that bloody shootout and Ray's hitman life. And then we jump cut straight to the external, looking through the kitchen window, Ray's back to domestic duties. He's doing the dishes, but he, you can see him thinking. And at the end of it, he just throws the tea towel down on the table with sort of some force and some disgust and just walks out of shot. So it's yeah. still clearly bother, it's, it's, something's bothering him and we're going to find out. It's the same house, future episode. Gaz takes the garage apartment that he renovated for Bruce. Right. I thought so too. But then when I saw yeah. the actual apartment that he renovated, it's not the same. It looks different. Anyway, we'll figure that out. Okay, so the next big moment is his scene in the car with Britty, which I loved. And again, it's shot from the back seat. Yeah, this exchange. And obviously, Chica, the actress who plays Britney, has grown. And you have to accommodate that. You have to deal with that. I'm sure that Nash is dealing with that as his daughter is really (laughs) growing in real life. And boy, she has got her teenage bitch on. (laughs) She is remarkable. She is so, she had such great energy. It's just, Mm -hmm. oh. I read an article that apparently she's finished this and she's done. She's just back to school. She's not actively acting or looking for acting roles. She's just there in Sydney, I guess, not Melbourne, but nonetheless, Yeah, she's just concentrating on school. Good for her. Good for her. But I like that it seems like Britty has an anger that makes sense to her. It's really not this just generic, even though she's doing like the whatever and dad, I'm 12 now and whatever boomer or whatever it is. (laughs) But she definitely has this anger about, as we'll see later, that you lied to me or you don't you all are hiding things from me. You start to get the seeds of that. She doesn't have stars in her eyes anymore about her dad, it seems like in this scene. Mm. Okay, so he drops her off. Okay, 
So again, a callback to his anger management problems. So Ray drops off Britty <laughs> and then makes a sharp turn and gets into a little pedestrian kerfluffle with two douchebags and he hits him and I take it that he's arrested, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and especially since he'd already been sentenced in series one to he escaped jail or remand by being sent to anger management so now he's belted a bloke right in front of the police car that pulled up behind him that he didn't know so this time they're like no you you're arrested you're going to be charged now in australia i don't think if his only previous was belting that kid that knocked brit's ice cream i don't really think he would have gone on remand but maybe he's got a record but anyway, it certainly gave us the plot opportunity to get into the prison and do whatever. Which is so fantastic, at, yeah. yeah. So as Ray explained, on remand, the police just decide, no, we're not going to let you be free in the community until we, we get you to court. You're going to sit in prison for a bit. And what I loved about this scene was, in one way, it's a complete replay But on the other hand, it's a reversal of that scene from series two when he's with Ali and they've been shopping and he goes to back out his car out of the car park and the two tradies and these two guys are tradies in this scene. The two tradies are in the ute behind him and they won't move and he just gives them a polite little beep beep to let them know and they jump out of the car. Now, Ray says, ah, here we go. And he says it like that. Now, when Ray jumps out of the car, the guy that he belts says, oh, here we go, in the exact same tone of voice, the exact same words, and it's it's a replay of that scene, only this one doesn't end up so well for Ray. What are tradies? Oh, sorry, tradies, tradesmen. So, oh, you know, okay. people who work, you know, builders, plumbers. In terms of the structure of the episode, this kind of reminded me of what Louis C.K., did with his series on FX, where you'd have half an episode that was devoted to this thing. Mm -hmm. And then the second half of the episode would be seemingly unrelated. It would be like a standalone story within the same episode. And that's how this felt, especially since, since we're being introduced to a new character Mm -hmm. and their prison experience from their perspective, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, now that you mentioned it, was I watched this a few weeks ago, and I when they start the prison section, for me, that was like a totally different episode, and I didn't remember that it was all part of episode one. But anyway, yeah, so the last, you know, half of, of this episode one takes place in prison. Now, Dean, these are the best dressed <laughs> prisoners I've <laughs> ever seen. It's like Gap Factory. <laughs> I mean, they have these really pretty, soft-looking green. Is that standard fare for prisoners in Australia? Well, first of all, thank you, Lisa, for assuming that I've uh, served time and I can speak with authority on the, the sartorial expert. sartorial uh, standards of inside of prisons. No, I don't know. I know we don't have the level of incarceration that you guys do. I just can't say whether it's. I mean, this like is that a this not. is a nice low security prison. It seems to me prisoners can go in and out wherever they want. It seems pretty relaxed. I mean, this is not Oz. Yeah. Okay, so for example, in Melbourne, we have what's called the Remand Centre or the Remand Centre. And it sits on the outskirts of town, only about a couple of k's from the courts, where all the courts are in Melbourne. So if you're held in remand, you're not sent to like some supermax. You're sent to the remand centre. So it's like this gigantic, it is a prison, 
but it's a gigantic holding cell of all the people the cops have decided you're not allowed out until until your trial and you're found guilty or not guilty then you'll be mm-hmm. sent to a real prison so it is probably a lighter kind of vibe than being sent to some serious prison where you're going to serve the next 50 years right so we meet this sweet innocent i also want to talk about the casting if we do talk to scott of adam who clearly is a fish way out of water. Brian, talk to me about what you think of Adam. Again, deer in the headlights. Uh, (laughs) I've never been arrested for anything. I've never been in jail or any kind of prison. But I, through his eyes, Mm -hmm. I can imagine this is exactly how I would feel. The fear of fill in the blank. Yep. And it's palpable, Mm -hmm. right? Without being, he's not quivering or anything, but I mean- Exactly, yeah. You can see that, this is a foreign place. This is not a typical experience for him. He is a fish out of water. And so that's really captured really well. And I was curious, is this There's the no guy reference. from the, yeah. yeah, was this the guy that he hit? He ended up in jail too for, and then once Ray makes his entrance and they have their banter, it's like, oh, best case scenario, you're rooming with this guy of right. all people. How right, perfect. right, right. And Brian, talk about the importance of when you're acting of actually doing a practical task. It is so wonderful and grounding and so few actors can really do it believably, but having Ray come in and make his bunk while go ahead, you take it, you know? Well, and this is the thing, any actors who are listening, who do self tapes or anything like that, find a physical activity that grounds the work. We're not talking about production value or just something that gives the character something to do because that's what we do in real life. We chew gum and walk at the same time. Be in your body, right? right? That's what we want to see, Mm -hmm. that kind of level of engagement. And in this scene, they're having a conversation, but he's making his bed. He has something to do. And that's how we operate it in the real world. That's what this whole thing is that we're doing. We're trying to take a slice of real life and dramatize it. Right, but it also adds a layer to the scene that he's doing this mundane, making his bed, but he's saying the most awful yeah. things that are he's right. just sort of tossing them aside. The matter of factly. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a raper. Why, what, what's wrong with raping? <laughs> it was just, it was such a great choice, a way to do it, to yeah. underplay it and softball it while Adam is like, what the fuck? Oh my God. Yeah. And also, I don't know if Ray did, well, if Ray's character did this on purpose or whether it was meant to be an in-joke, but the length of time it took for him to get the sheet on the bed, did he just dick around with that so that he had time to deliver all the lines? Mm-hmm. Or you see he's holding up the sheet and who hasn't gone to put their doona cover onto the sheet? Go, hang on, is this the short side or the long side? <laughs> and he's trying to work out right, which right, one right. it is on the bunk. And he sort of throws it on and goes, no, no. Then he spins it around and, yeah, I thought that was quite funny. But I thought it was just a great meeting of two polar opposite people it was just great. And it again, what I love about the show is the things that it doesn't do, the right. traps that it doesn't trip into, the stereotypes, the tropes, the beats that we that Ray goes in there and they have a fight or he abuses him or they become buddy, buddy, chummy, chummy. They avoid so many 
traps that is so refreshing. But anyway, so the next is Britty. He's talking to Britty on the phone and she is just not having it. She's just, I've had enough of, of his evasiveness and he doesn't tell me where he is. He doesn't tell me what he's doing for two weeks in Brisbane. I mean, you can, for me, you can see that sort of resentment settling in her little, her little body. Lisa, that's excellent pronunciation of Brisbane. Of what? What did I say? You said Brisbane. I did? That's that's how you say it. You didn't say Brisbane. Oh, okay. Most Americans would say Brisbane or Brisbane or something, but. Brisbane. Yay. Well this done. Is, this is the thing I will say, and it, it's reinforced in one and two for me, is especially how Brit is with him. She is a piece of his world that he could lose quite easily. Mm. And that's building a kind of tension in me as a viewer, what's going to happen to her. It almost feels like these first two episodes are about establishing a couple of things. And then episode three, we get into the meat of the central storyline. New, for him. Yeah. Okay, well, that wraps up episode one. So let's let's say goodbye here, guys. We're going to sign off for Killer Casting for now, but boy, we are going to dig in deep to each and every episode. So for now, say goodbye, beasts. Bye, beasts. Goodbye, everybody, and keep watching, keep listening. Oh, and by the way, if you've got some comments, as we've got some guests coming up from the show, if you want to ask some questions about specific people, for example, Nick Cassim, the actor who played Bruce, Brucey. Ray's brother, do mm-hmm. go to our website. And if you click on the contact page, you'll see a little icon there for speak pipe. Lisa, hold your shit together. <laughs> and you can record a message there in your voice. Just record it from your computer and you will appear on the pod. If it's a Nick Cassim related, Nick's coming up in a few weeks, anything about Bruce's character and we'll play that back. Of course, if I get 5,000 of them, you may not all get on but we'll do the very best we can. So, yeah, looking forward to that. Alrighty. Killer Casting was created and produced by Lisa Zambetti. Sound editing by Dean Laffin from Real World Productions. Logo art by April Laffin. Theme music provided by Amphibious Zoo Music. And Big Fat Opinions provided by Brian Allen Hill. Hill.